cure here. <laughs> so that's the nature of the beast. Well, good afternoon to all of you, and good morning, hopefully, to you in Hawaii. Uh, as you know, the last two sermons, we went into Zechariah 1 through 2, and then last time, uh, 3 through 4. And I want to do a little review here from the standpoint of this entire message or flow of a message in the Minor Prophets. Uh, with the overall thought that what is now a message to spiritual Israel, the church, uh, and which we are focusing on in this particular series, the direction I'm coming from, in other words, with it, is a story that can be preached to the church now, but one which will be repeated by the ministry of who we are discussing, the two witnesses, to the entire nations of Israel on a physical level. Because you can go through it and pick out the story here and the pattern that we see in the church today, and yet you can see that this will apply to the physical peoples of Israel as well uh, shortly hereafter, and needs again to be preached to them in much the same manner that we are discussing it with the church, that the message is the same to them as it is to us. So let's go back uh, and review briefly Hosea, Joel, and Amos. I'm going to link together here, and I won't spend much time on these and, and do them justice in that sense, but Hosea, Joel, and Amos define the problem, the sinfulness within the church of God today, the difficulties that we're experiencing, and Joel gives the time setting just prior to and including the day of the Lord culminating in the return of Christ. So the timing and the message is all here for the end-time church as well as end-time physical Israel. The book of Obadiah then shows an enemy which will both be in the church and which will affect physical Israel as well. That is the Edomite or the people of Esau who have always been a thorn in the side to Jacob and will rise up over Jacob as Genesis shows then the book of Jonah is inset there Jonah being primarily remembered as a result of what Christ said about his own uh, time in the grave 72 hours but in the flow of this prophecy at the end time it does appear that a rebellious coward will enter the scene at some point uh, in the church who is not willing to do the things or whatever God chooses to be done will hold back for whatever reasons the book of Micah gives a warning it gives a bit of a preview of what will happen with the restored church and ultimately in the millennium as well uh, some have thought well maybe Daryl doesn't think all these scriptures are referring to the millennium and Isaiah and through the prophecies including the minor prophets well yes I do but I think it is going to start a little earlier than the millennium with the restored church and that God will give spiritual blessings and even physical blessings to his remnant church when he brings her together uh, Micah promises that deliverance is going to come he tells the church to rise and thresh and face this world and what is coming against it the book of Nahum introduces another enemy and yet at the same time it is addressed very much to Judah or the remnant of the church that came out of worldwide in the pattern here uh, and gives reference to the end time messenger in chapter 1 and verse 15 uh, about those whose 
bring good tidings, and we will see quite a bit about that today, but I wanted to point out that they are introduced there. So they are with and part of the church long before we get to the book of Haggai and Zechariah, and we need to understand this flow, that they are not a couple of people that suddenly appear at the very end with 1260 days late left, because if we do not recognize where the correct message is until that time, it may be too late for us. We need to hear the message today. We need to know where God is working today. Because we need to respond. And the remnant at some point is going to, as a whole, respond and come to where God is going to be working. So we need to be alert and aware of the fact that those people, though laboring perhaps in uh, obscurity to some degree, are going to burst on the scene in a worldwide fashion. And we will see today that uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua uh, were working with the church primarily. Well, exclusively in that sense. And as Zerubbabel and Joshua, their job was to rebuild the church. Now there is a link with Moses and Elijah, which we will also see. And that is included for a reason, because when they start fulfilling the roles of Moses and Elijah, they will enter the world stage. Meantime, it is a church stage, and it is a very small stage in that sense. Then on to the book of Habakkuk, where briefly Habakkuk says, such a mess. And then he says, how long, O Lord? Zephaniah talks about a financial crash. Perhaps this crash has to do with the church, which certainly has crashed. But in an overall sense, it will be with the financial system of this world and this nation, which will crash. And it certainly affects the church. Chapter 2, he talks about saving ourselves and gathering ourselves together and being meek and humble and contrite and obedient to God so that we might be counted worthy, as Matthew 24 echoes. It also says that a humble and contrite people will be saved out of the wreckage that is coming. Then we get to the book of Haggai, where the leadership of the latter temple is first uh, censored for having their mind too much on the physical things of building homes and so on. Someone has suggested that perhaps that also talks about Zerubbabel, and the, and the uh, commentaries do uh, confirm this thought, that perhaps he was too busy building a family dynasty as well and was somewhat distracted by that, um, as well as perhaps physical dwellings. In other words, the entire uh, focus has to be on the church building the spiritual family of God. Then we get to the book of Zechariah, which began in the middle of Haggai's message, which was only about four months long. And uh, we have, a, again, a warning in the very first part. And then it goes on to show that Jerusalem will be built, that is, the church will be built back. Christ will be a wall of fire around it. And then it begins to talk about the leadership, introducing first Joshua and then Zerubbabel, which is where we left it off last time. Now understand that the message will be 
And the message of the minor prophets is to the whole church, to every daughter that came out of worldwide. That is the key here. It leaves no one out. And I think it's important before we get on into the message, which is the main focus I want to discuss today, of Zerubbabel and Joshua to the church. We need to understand ahead of time that none of us are important. We just had a sermon out here about the weak and the base and how God has used the refuge, the refugees, the misfits, the various ones to confound the wise. And so even within the church, those whom God uses probably will not be the mighty and the noble, but some misfits and some obscure uh, individuals. I mean, look back at David. How does God work? Even David's father left him out. So the idea was you must have one more son. Oh, well, let's see. Oh, yeah, I do have one more. <laughs> He's out with the sheep. <laughs> well, fetch him. So that's the way God tends to work. Now, I want to show this in Lamentations. We do go back here in relationship to the church once in a while. And I'll preface this by saying that when I have discussed the daughter of Zion, it has generally been in a favorable way, that she was the chosen one of the daughters who came out of worldwide, and that God would use her, whoever she is, wherever she turns out to be. But you have to take the good with the bad. And I want to point out that here in the book of Lamentations, she too comes under fire. Let's pick it up in Lamentations 1 and verse 6. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Let's read on a bit. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. We remember worldwide in her glory and how things went well and we were essentially peaceful. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths, her feasts, her weekly Sabbaths. We were despised by uh, the people around because of the things we kept, the things we did. Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sighs and turns backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts, her adulteries, spiritual adulteries. She remembers not her last end, therefore she came down wonderfully or mightily or with a big thump. She had no comforter. And that's basically the position you and I have been in for quite some time now. For, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. Now I'm reading these particular verses partly because of the dynamics that are occurring right here in big sandy Gladewater in this area uh, within the next, well, a little over a month, I guess, because Big Sandy is going up on the auction block. Ambassador College will be auctioned off piece by piece, part by part, and probably will receive one to ten cents on the dollar, I would think, in depressed East Texas on its real worth. All the blood, sweat, tears, ties, and every effort that we put into that 
is going to be sold off to the highest bidder. I think of my own childhood and working in the piney woods to clear the muscadine vines and the brambles and the briars and the, the blackberry bushes and everything else. And it really hurts to see this happening. But here it is. I talked to a person yesterday that I happened to run into that has no connection with the church who asked me where I was from as I was coming into town. And I told him I lived in Gladewater in Big Sandy. Well, he had too. And uh, he said, do you know Coach so-and-so over at uh, Gladewater High? I said, no, I went to Imperial School. And his countenance changed. <laughs> but notice here in verse, it, it talks about mocking at her uh, in verse 7. Uh, verse 10, the adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom you did command that they should not enter into your congregation. So we are being mocked at, and this ties in very well, uh, if you want to make a note, with Zechariah 1. Remember it says that God was a little displeased, and then when the heathen came in, he became sorely displeased with the church. He wasn't entirely happy with it, uh, yet when the heathen came in, then it was really a mess. So Lamentations 1.10 fits very well with that. Now let's go on to chapter 2, verse 1. Back specifically now to the daughter of Zion, not just the whole church. How has the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger and cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and re remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? Chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads, and so on. Chapter 2, verse 13. What thing shall I take to witness for you? What thing shall I liken to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal you to, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your breach is great like the sea. Who can heal you? Chapter 2, verse 18. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Let not the apple of your eye cease. God talks about, in chapter 2 of Zechariah, the apple of his eye being the church and this daughter. I think he even mentions daughter of Zion there in, in uh, Zechariah 2, if I recall properly. Let me go back there and take a quick look at that. Chapter 2. Well, he says, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. But in the, Yeah, and then he says something about her. Who touches her touches the apple of God's eye. And then it, in verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. So he is talking about the remnant church, the daughter of Zion here. And um, this is not a pretty message even for the one that God picks out to do the leading ultimately. Chapter 2, verse 19 of Lamentations again. Arise, cry out in the night. If this isn't the night spiritually, I don't know when it will be. It will come to the world in the day of gloominess, in the day of the Lord, in terms of the moon and the sun being blotted out. But right now, the church is front and center, sitting in darkness. In the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. As we come upon these events, as they get drawn, as they draw nearer, the beginning of the watches, and then it will proceed. Lift up your hands toward Him for the life of your young children, and faint for hunger in the top of every street. 
Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. This is your people, in other words. This is your church. Consider to whom you've done this. Shall the women, that is the churches, eat their fruit and children of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? And yet they're falling on the left and the right of us constantly. What a message here. Chapter 3, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So God gives us an opportunity every day to change the relationship between he and us. The Lord is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. We have to patiently wait for this to end as Habakkuk finally reminded himself. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So these churches now are all new. The daughter of Zion is new, having come out of worldwide. And it's good for a man to suffer a certain amount of difficulties, young in life, lest he have success too early and then coast through the rest of his life. God will not allow that to happen to the church. Chapter 4, verse 10. One more here. The hands of the pitiful women, the churches, have sodden their own children. They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. And you can tie in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 34, Malachi 1 and 2 with that if you wish. So the point I want to make here is that just as in the Song of Songs, remember how one daughter was chosen, she was going to become the bride of Christ. And all of, In the overall sense of Haggai, I think it means that when he draws a remnant together, it's going to be under one head, one set of leadership. The other daughters were jealous. But if you recall the story, the chosen one, the bride, got comfortable in bed and did not want to get up and let her soon uh, groom-to-be in the door. She, too, became comfortable. Now, I'm not trying to define here just who that particular daughter is whom God will choose at this point. But the point I want to make to you and to me is that no one, no one, can afford to relax and settle on their leaves, their ease, lees, as, uh, as Zephaniah said. In the words of Paul, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one, Paul said. He was addressing the Greeks and the Jews and so on in that particular chapter. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Same context. All the churches of Revelation 2 through 3 are told to overcome, i.e., to repent, to change, to be different than what they are. In other words, no one, no church, no organization can say, I am okay, my organization is okay. It is just simply too easy to settle down and say, hey, this must be the place, whether you be in United or Global or Living or Church of the Great God or a smaller group, wherever it might be. No one has that luxury. 
Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. So whoever you might think you are, this applies. And it does appear that the other, the flip side of this coin of the daughter of Zion is that she too, like the rest of the daughters, goes through the meat grinder before God begins to draw the remnant together and truly put the church together. So there have been many people who thought they were the two witnesses, uh, thousands, millions through the years, I'm sure. Uh, anybody that picked it up and read it thought, hey, that's a neat job. Uh, they didn't read it all, I don't think. But nevertheless, let's understand that wherever we are, we had better not relax. God is going to draw together the humble and the contrite. Now, I want to go where we left off in Zechariah 4, uh, at least in reference here, because I said at that point uh, we would discuss the message of these who are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Now, review briefly to prove just who these are. Chapter 4 of Zechariah, verse 13, He answered me and said, Know you not my... Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is quoted in in, uh, Revelation 11. These are the two olive trees. This is the only reference to the two olive trees in the rest of the Bible except Revelation 11. So what he is doing here is making a positive identification that Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are stipulated to be the ones to lead the remnant to rebuild the church, are the two witnesses. That is their main focus. I want to quote one more back here in Revelation 11, uh, which is one of the final points I made in the last sermon. Revelation 11. uh, This vision was given to the Apostle John, of course, at the very toward the end of his life and it said in verse 11 of chapter 10 you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings now old man John at that point was not going to go out and do this but he did represent the leadership of the church and this is an end time prophecy as Revelation 11 or Revelation 1 clearly shows the setting is the day of the Lord Revelation 1 10 So he is talking here in prophecy of what will happen at the end. And that the prophecy must come again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now I submit that Herbert Armstrong went to kings and nations and peoples and so on. And God used him to call many people who are now being sorted out and chosen, a few of them at least. But fast forward now to... The thought as it continues in chapter 11, verse 1, the end time setting. There was given me, that would be the leadership of the church again, uh, represented by the Apostle John, who was play-acting this thing out as much as Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah did some of their prophecies. There was given John, or the leadership today, a reed like a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the church. Focus on the church and the altar, that is the ministry, and them that worship therein, that is the laity, the flock, the sheep. But the court which is without the temple leave out. 
and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. Now this prophecy is leading up to the 1260 days of the ministry of the two witnesses, which it shows a little later on in the chapter, they will go to the world. But their first focus is on the church. And he says, while you are dealing with and measuring the temple, while you are dealing with the ministry and the laity in the church, forget about the Gentiles. Forget about taking a gospel to the world. That will come later in sequence. And so, as Zerubbabel and Joshua are introduced in Haggai and Zechariah, there is no hint of preaching the gospel to the world until the very last verse of Haggai, which says, I'll make Zerubbabel a signet or a banner to the nations. So in this interim period, between the death of Herbert Armstrong and the beginning of the 1260 days and the message to the world that will then take on Moses and Elijah-like proportions, and I don't want to get into that too much here because I don't want to steal the thunder of the book of Malachi. And there is quite a significant thing that will happen there. <clears throat> but the emphasis is on the church, and we're going to see that as we get now into <clears throat> the message itself. Let's go to Mark 1. Mark 1. All four of the Gospels talk about John the Baptist. And they put a little different emphasis on it, and a little different uh, meaning, and each one adds a little bit to the story. But let's start here in Mark 1. <clears throat> the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my mes messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now what is this one crying in the wilderness? Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So his focus was preparing the way of the Lord, making straight paths, proper judgment, right uh, procedures, correct ways of living, and to preach repentance. So the message of John the Baptist, and we'll see that John the Baptist is tied together very tightly and is uh, a type of the end-time work of Zerubbabel, Joshua, Moses, Elijah, and so on. We'll get to that as we go. But <clears throat> Christ, when he wrote these words or said these things, he's off of Isaiah 40, which we'll get to a little later on, in making the statements. Now go to Malachi 3, if you would. We will dip into Malachi a little bit here, though I don't want to emphasize it too much, because this is to come later, and it will be a climax to this series, because God is building up to something. But notice in Malachi 3, this, again, is in the end-time prophecies. This is not referring to the time when Christ was here on the earth, except in a lesser fulfillment. <clears throat> the final fulfillment will be the return of Christ in glory. A way had to be prepared for him to come the first time, and a way in a more dramatic fashion has to be prepared for him to come the second time. Because he is going to come in far greater glory and drama than he did the first time. So the conditions are different. Notice Malachi, an end-time book written as the last of the minor prophets. 
set with timing by Joel as the end of the age. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts, for whom may abide the day of his coming. Now notice the context here. Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. He did not do this his first time around. He castigated the sons of Levi and Judah. He got on their backs because of the uh, corruptions that they had done to his word, the Old Testament. But he did not refine them and purify them. In fact, in John 10, he said, I don't think I have anything to do with you until a second resurrection. And he put them off and said, you're not even at this time sheep in my fold. You tried to, you're trying to come in the wrong way, not through me. And I will not find this acceptable. So this is not talking about the first time that Christ came to the earth. It's talking about when he returns in glory, and he is going to set things right at that time. So this messenger he's talking about in chapter 3 and verse 1, who must prepare the way, is at the end of this age. It's not talking about John the Baptist in particular, though John the Baptist fulfilled this in part by preparing the way the first time. But we're talking about an end-time messenger here. And the same words are used that Mark used in chapter 1, right here in Malachi 3. Now let's go to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. Uh, Here, Matthew shows where where Christ derived what he was saying, and it is Isaiah 40. Chapter 3, verse 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And verse 8, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, and so on. No one has any credibility, in other words. No one. Not even those who were God's chosen ones in the Old Testament would have any credibility. John was preaching repentance to them all. Now let's go to Luke 3. He adds a little bit more back here. Luke 3. And uh, I want to pick it up in about verse, well, verse 3. Speaking of uh, John the Baptist, he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Remember what the prophets say, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so on, about a message of peace, peace, when there is no peace? John the Baptist came crying, repentance for the remission of sins. And he says, verse 4, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, a dark spiritual time uh, in terms of the church, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now this applied to John the Baptist in part, But look at the context there. It's talking about 
knocking down of all governments, of all hills, of all peoples on this earth. It's talking about the end time. Recall what we read in Zechariah 4, last sermon, where it said the mountains and hills will be, be, be made low. Be, well, let me go back and read that rather than trying to quote it because I, I'm thinking of two scriptures here. Uh, Zechariah 4 and verse 7. Well, let's go back to verse 6. He says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God is going to take a hand here, in other words. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings crying grace, grace to it. So, the same kind of language is used to describe John the Baptist's message as is used to describe what Zerubbabel will ultimately do to a the church and all of its authorities and governments and B the world and its governments mountains and hills big ones and little ones I said it will become dramatic and there's where Moses and Elijah come into the picture we'll discuss that more when we get to the book of Malachi but you can see the tie in here between John the Baptist's message and Zerubbabel for sure there in in Luke 3 now let's go to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, and go to uh, verse 21 here. Well, let's start in 19 to get the context. Now, this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, he was being modest, and perhaps in his own mind he did not feel that he was, but Christ at one point said, yes, he was the Elijah to come, which we'll see in a little bit. Are you that prophet? And he answered, no. Then said they to him, who are you, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What say you of yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as said the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> I don't think that Zerubbabel and Joshua are going to be proclaiming who they think they are. Just as John the Baptist did not proclaim who he might have been or who Christ confirmed he was. He was simply saying, I am crying out for you to repent. That's who I am. That's all I am. You see the message is what is important. John did not consider himself that important as a messenger, but the message is all important here. If the message isn't right, you can throw the messenger out. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. Now I'll go back, since we've quoted this several times, and read Isaiah 40 very quickly. We've referred to it several times recently, but... Here it talks about comfort you, comfort you, my people, and speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry that her warfare is accomplished. Now that's where we are in the Minor Prophets in terms of Haggai and Zechariah because we had severe warnings and castigation from God in the first books of the Minor Prophets and then we get to the point where comfort is given. Verse 3, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
And here he repeats what we read in Zechariah 4 and in uh, Luke, or John it was, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This didn't happen with the first advent of Christ, but it is about to happen with his second coming. So part of the message is good tidings of great joy on the heels of the troubles that we are now facing and will face. Now let's go to Matthew 11. We'll begin to tie some of this together. Matthew 11, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force, or a struggle, trial, it's difficult. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So the focus comes in on John the Baptist, of all the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, and so on. And if it came in on him, then it comes in even more so before the second return of Christ, which again is in far greater drama and far greater glory than he was the first time. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was, was for to come. So he makes the clear link between John the Baptist and the Elijah. All right? I think that is very clear. Couldn't be said in any, any plainer uh, a term. Now, let's go to Matthew 17. This is the transfiguration. And notice how this is linked. Uh, after six days, chapter 17 of Matthew, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, took them up on a high mountain, and he had this transfiguration before them. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. So this setting is of the second coming of Christ, not the first. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now the disciples as you know the story, immediately thought, well, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll build booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They had a spirit of service there. So Christ projected James, Peter, and John into the time of the second return of Christ, where he was glorified before them. And he appeared with who? David and Abraham? No, Moses and Elijah. Now, there's a reason for this, and we'll get to that in more detail when we get to the book of Malachi and show what the job of Moses will be at the end and what the job of Elijah will be at the end. The things they have to do when all these types begin to come together at the end in a context larger than that of just the church. Now, notice, while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, verse 5, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said... This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you Him. So God is going to send Zerubbabel and Joshua as the two olive trees, or the two witnesses to rebuild the church. Then they will enter the world stage as Moses and Elijah to preach these things of these prophets to the world. That is, to primarily to Israel, both houses of Israel because they also need to repent, just as the church today needs to repent. But the key figure, lest we 
get things out of order here in our minds, get the cart before the horse. The key figure in all this will be Jesus Christ. If you recall Isaiah 52, where it tells the church to rise and put on her garments and to be holy and righteous, and then it introduces the two witnesses in verse 7. Then there's an inset, and you have a whole chapter dealing in chapter 53 with Christ himself. How he is the sacrifice, he is the key figure. And once that inset is done, then the blessings begin to come to the church. And we have to recognize, and that's what he was trying to get across to these apostles, is here my son first. This is my son. The two witnesses are going to come in sackcloth. That is a typification of humility. They're not going to try to supersede or be a big deal. In that sense at all, God is going to add the power, but they have to come in humility and contriteness. And to rebuild the church, we're going to have to have on the scene leaders who are humble and contrite, easily entreated, who will treat the people gently and tenderly, as Ezekiel 34 says, bringing in the type of David here again, to have the same manner with God's people that David had with the sheep. Not to hurt, to lash out, to slaughter, to sacrifice the sheep, but to help them find good pasture, still waters, and peace and contentment, which Haggai says is going to come in the latter temple. So the emphasis is on Jesus Christ, who can bring this about. Could Moses and Aaron have done anything without Christ? Could John the Baptist have accomplished anything without Christ to follow up? John the Baptist only prepared the way for the key figure. So let's never lose sight of that. Now, going on down. As they came down, verse 9, from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man. So Moses and Elijah did not appear there. They weren't resurrected. It was a vision. Until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Then it was to be preached. In other words, it didn't have to do with John the Baptist preparing the way before he came, but this was to be preached after he was resurrected. After John the Baptist had long since lost his head. And his disciple asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? You know, the disciples couldn't understand. John the Baptist is already dead. So why should Elijah first come? But I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they listed. They cut his head off. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. He was also killed of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Up till then they didn't quite get the picture of how all this symbolism came together. Uh, it was a a vortex of confusion, I guess, in their minds and emotions about John the Baptist and Elijah and so on, and then they finally got the picture that this had to come again, that it had to be preached long after Christ had been resurrected. All right, let's go to Malachi 4. This thought, Malachi 4. Verse 5. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest they come and smite the earth with a curse. So the context here is the day of the Lord and just prior to the return of Christ, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So John the Baptist, as a man preparing for Christ, was only the first wave. He was the first fulfillment. But a greater fulfillment is to be here. I'm not saying that those who do it will be greater than John the Baptist. I didn't say that. What I did say was that the drama and the circumstances are going to be far greater on a world stage than that which John the Baptist had in the area around Palestine and the desert out there. This is a far greater thing in that sense and will encompass and affect the whole world. Now let me check my time here. Uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua are woven together in the story of John the Baptist uh, with a link to Moses and Elijah. Now let's go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. I want us to analyze what are the specific things that will be preached at the end. Now this context, and you can start in about Isaiah 35, uh, particularly from 40 on, where it does talk about those who come, or he who comes, preparing the way for Christ and preaching, and how valleys and hills will be made low, and so on. Um, and it goes right on through, well, actually really through the rest of the book of Isaiah, but he talks about his witnesses here in, uh, well, let's, let's look at uh, chapters 40 through 54 a little bit. I don't want to get into this too much because I did give it in the fourth sermon at the Feast of Tabernacles in South Africa this year, and some of you have heard it, though some have not. But this whole context through here is talking about uh, the coming of the two witnesses on the scene and of the rebuilding of the church, and I go into that quite extensively showing that this is not in the millennium per se, but it happens before then, and the context is of the day of the Lord, the context is of the Assyrian and the land, and so on and so forth, to indicate that this happens before then. In other words, the restoration starts with the rebuilding of the latter temple and then continues right on into the millennium and, and involves all Israel then, not just the church. But it starts with the church because things must be restored as per Micah 4, verse 5 and 6. And we will get into exactly what must be restored when we get to that. But it's talking here uh, in the same language in Isaiah 52, verse 7, that was introduced in Isaiah 40. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. This is repeated again, remember, in Nahum 1.15. Now what does he do? He's preaching good tidings, the good news of the world tomorrow. To use Herbert Armstrong's words, but this is a continuation. This is a rebuilding, not Herbert Armstrong this is talking about that publishes peace one of the main and key subjects in the end time work the end time rebuilding of the church 
which is what the two witnesses first do, measure the temple, measure Jerusalem, is to publish peace. Those things which are required in order for us as a church to have peace. Because in Haggai 2, he says, In this place I will bring peace. Verse 9, I think it is. So part of the message is peace, harmony, unity. Those are all synonyms. They mean the same thing. Unity must return to the church, or the remnant of the church, because that's all that's going to survive, at least until the tribulation. So a key element is going to be peace, unity, and harmony. You're, when we start looking for the correct message that will be preached at the end, there's where we start. Projecting to the kingdom of God and peace. That brings good tidings of good, which is similar uh, in focus, that publishes salvation, that talks about the process of salvation, that shows what must occur in order for us to have salvation. Here is another key characteristic of the gospel at the end time, of what must be preached by him, or this one, uh, primarily to start with here, that says to Zion, your God reigns preaches to the church the omnipotence, the sovereignty, the providence of God. That is going to be a key element of the end time message. We need to start looking for people who are proclaiming these things, who have their focus on the church, not preaching the gospel to the world, but forgetting about them for the moment and preaching these things to the people of God. That says to Zion, that is to the church, Hebrews 12, 2, 2, 22 through 23. All right, there are some key elements of it. You might write them down and start looking for people who are preaching those things. Where do you hear the message of salvation explained? The process of justification, of sanctification, of glorification, of what we must go through to obtain the salvation of God. Start looking for that message. Now let's go to the book of Luke, because we've already shown the link between John the Baptist and the end, the end time Elijah, uh, and how Moses and Elijah are, again, types or symbols of the two witnesses. Uh, let's pick it up in Luke. Uh, I want to begin here in verse 17. Luke 1, 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we'll examine what the spirit and power of Elijah is later on. Not today, but later. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Here's a quote from Malachi 4. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here is the job. This isn't necessarily the message as such. This is the job. Prepare the people for the Lord, or prepare the bride, or as Herbert Armstrong said, get the church ready. It's all the same thing, just put in a little different words. So there's the focus of the end time leadership. Now let's go to Luke 1 and verse 67. Speaking of John the Baptist, and his father Zacharias, as was uh, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, here's a prophecy for the future. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, his prophecy in his mind had to do with his particular son. And it was fulfilled by John the Baptist, just as it is said here. But we've already seen that the work of John the Baptist has to be repeated on a different forum, on a different stage, at the end. Uh, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You can go to Ezekiel 34 and see that in this scattered time, when there is no leader, that God is going to raise up those leaders who will have the same attitude toward the sheep that David did. So the spirit and attitude of David will be in the end-time leadership. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Well, these are the prophecies we're reading that apply to us today at the end time. The return of Christ and the restoration of the church first, who becomes the bride, and then the restoration of all Israel and Judah. Then's when we are saved from our enemies. And the church also has to be saved, you see, uh, by going to a place of safety, with Satan chasing her out of the country, or out of the, where they are. Verse 72, To perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant to, the, to us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Are we there yet? I don't think that they reached that juncture in Christ's first ministry at all. People never came to live without fear. But he tells the end time church in Isaiah 40, 41, 42, and then several times over again in Haggai, not to fear, but to be of good courage and to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So the same type of language is used for the end-time church that he uses right here in speaking of John the Baptist as a man. Alright, verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Here's another element of the end-time gospel. Holiness and righteousness. Not, you happen to be in the right organization, therefore you're going to be in the kingdom of God. But the emphasis is going to be on holiness and righteousness. So when you start looking for the end-time message and those who will be the end-time leaders of the church, look for a message that emphasizes holiness and righteousness. And you, child, uh, shall be called the prophet of the highest. The two witnesses are called prophets in Revelation 11. For you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, his ways, his way of living. We talk about, and Paul talked about, this way, the way of God, the way of life. Now notice specifically what the message will be. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. Well, that's what we read in Isaiah 52, 7. Knowledge of salvation. Uh, it said preach salvation there, I think. But here it says knowledge of salvation. In other words, all the attendant elements of salvation must be understood and preached by the remission of their sins. So repentance, which we read in several verses at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
repentance and forgiveness of sin has to be a major part of it. It cannot be a benign gospel. It cannot be a gospel of peace and love and harmony in the sense of having it today. Because to achieve those goals which he lays out for the church and says will occur in the book of Haggai, repentance has to be preached first. Now going on, to prepare his ways, here again, preparing the bride, getting the people ready, getting the church ready. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring, or my margin says branch, referring to Malachi 4.2, the branch of the Lord, from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness. Now, who sits in darkness today spiritually? Well, the whole world does, deceived by Satan, obviously. But the whole church basically is sitting in darkness today. The church does not understand what God is doing. The church does not understand what the message of the witnesses at the end is going to be. They think suddenly they're going to come on the scene and start doing miracles as per what we read about what will happen in those three and a half years, 42 months, or uh, 1260 days. And the church as a whole does not recognize that they are on the scene long before in the guise of, or type of, Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild the church. And that what we are talking about here is the message that is required to prepare the people of God. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The church today does not understand how to achieve peace, harmony, and unity. I present the fruits as the witness of that. I've got on my email at home in my office right now, I have a little battle waging between, or raging and being waged by several people uh, on the internet about Herbert Armstrong. Some saying that he prophesied correctly and some pointing out every time he said Mussolini or Hitler was going to be the, the guy uh, that he was a false prophet and they are back and forth, forth and back I did not initiate this little uh, squabble uh, nor do I get involved in it but uh, somebody put me on the little mailing list in that particular chat room so I'm getting all the messages and believe me there is no peace there they simply don't understand. So we have to be taught humility and meekness and contriteness, kindness and gentleness, in order to learn the way of peace which God says he's going to bring in the latter temple. So the leaders have to be preaching these things. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. John the Baptist is an original man. So you see there are some of the key elements of the message. And you need to look around and examine what is being taught. First of all, we've got to find people who are preparing a people for God. Who are doing what Armstrong, Herbert Armstrong told us to do as a ministry. And that is, get the church ready. Prepare the bride. Many are focusing on preaching to the world, while the bride, having been told in Isaiah 52 to put on her white garments and I don't think she's dressed 
In fact, her whole fanny is out there for the whole world to see. <laughs> and they're going to see it at the auction right here in Big Sandy on April 4th. And they're going to mock and laugh her to scorn that this so-called great work that was preaching the gospel to the world as a witness and then the end will come has met its waterloo. And we will be the laughing stock of East Texas. And if there's any publicity at all, we'll be the laughing stock of anyone who hears about it. Why are we a laughing stock? We're a laughing stock because we sinned and became Laodicean and thought we were okay. We thought we stood and we have fallen. And there are many today who are maintaining they've still got to carry on and preach that gospel. But these scriptures are telling us that we need to look for someone who is preparing the bride as a key element of what they're doing as their focus. And then what their message is going to be is preaching peace, unity, and harmony and how that is to be accomplished. Salvation and all the steps that are required to do it. The sovereignty and providence of God and holiness and righteousness. Those are the key elements. Now it is up to each and every one of us to begin to look around and find out where these things that Christ lays out are being preached. And when we find this kind of message, ultimately we will be led to the right messengers. I mean, message and messenger goes together. How are you going to fight that? Now, perhaps the monkey wrench, or as the South Africans say, the spanner in the works here, is that there might be more than one or two people preaching this. There may be three or four or eight or ten or fifteen. I don't know. I can look at the major groups fairly easy and see what their focus is and what their message is, but I can't look at all of the four, five, six hundred little groups. And there may be a little David out there among the sheepies somewhere that I have no knowledge of who is preaching these very same things. So I'm not saying that if you find someone preaching these things, that that is necessarily where God is going to bring the leadership from. Zerubbabel and Joshua are these two witnesses that we're discussing. He has the option in himself to raise up whomsoever he chooses. But I do not think we can at all go wrong by focusing in on what God says is the end time message and getting ourselves in line with it and as a church focusing on and preaching it because that's what Herbert Armstrong and these scriptures tell us to do and then when God does raise up these particular leaders and begin to draw the remnant into one group and bring peace, harmony, and unity there we will already be in alignment with it that is we will recognize it for what it is. Because if it's only a 10% remnant, and Isaiah 1-9 even says a small remnant at that, most of the church, brethren, 90% plus of the church of God will not recognize who these leaders are. That just blows my mind. But the church is so fast departing 
from this focus that we've read about today. Now you see, I think most of the church, if they read Revelation 11, and they read various other places that refer to the end time work, are so hung up on already thinking they are Philadelphian that they're okay. And they think continuing what Herbert Armstrong started, that i.e. the gospel to the world, is the correct focus. So they, they miss the whole point here. They don't recognize that Haggai and Zechariah are talking about the rebuilding of the church after a hiatus of leadership, which Hosea 3 and Micah 4 and several other scriptures talk about, where we have no king, no leader, for a while, for an interim period. Isaiah about 50, 51 talks about, there is no son among all those that she raised who can lead. And we are in that period of time right now when there is simply a dearth of leadership with, and people with all kinds of different focuses. But God tells us here what the end time focus has to be. And if people do not have this focus, then obviously they're not doing what God wants done right now. Now later on, you get down into Revelation 11, and the, the focus does turn to the world. But the reason people can't see what is happening today or is about to happen with the church is because when they address the subject of the two witnesses, all they thought about is plagues and um, water turned to blood and no rain on earth and fire coming out of their mouths and devouring, as Revelation 11 clearly shows, once their attention turns away from uh, a focus on the church only to that of the world and enter that stage is Moses and Elijah. But since that is all that they have considered, they're not going to recognize the leadership in the church which is teaching the way of peace and salvation and the providence of God and all these things that we read in Isaiah 52 and Luke 1 must be breached. Therefore, they don't recognize the leadership ahead of time. And I tell you, it's imperative that we understand the message and therefore begin to find the messengers before the 1260 starts because that's the beginning of the tribulation and the church leaves at that point and they're left looking around saying, oh, there they are, but the church is already gone. And it's too late. And they're in the tribulation. And probably less than 10% are going to recognize the Rebbebel and Joshua for who they are before this comes about and come together to build the remnant church. As we saw in the beginning of this sermon, even that church, whichever daughter it is, the daughter of Zion, which he says in Micah 4 and other places, Proverbs 31, many, many references to the daughter of Zion whom God is going to choose of all the daughters and bring and put together the church through. Even she goes through the same things the rest of the daughters are going through. Therefore, it makes it hard for you and I to recognize where she is or who she is because she's going to suffer the same things as everyone else. Because she, too, has been Laodicea. She, too, has thought she was okay and must repent deeply before God. So it doesn't make any difference which group we're in. Everybody who is in a group thinks they're in the right group. Otherwise, they'd be in a different group. 
Okay. This, this is axiomatic, I think. But God says every last one of the daughters is going to go through trouble and division and scattering. So whoever we are who think we stand, we need to take heed lest we fall. If we think we're spiritually okay, we are in trouble. Read about Laodicea. And it is so dangerous to stand up and say, I'm Philadelphia, the rest of you are Laodicea. Because where God is working with this message, which we have examined today, how many ever there are, whether it be only two, or whether it be eight or ten or fifteen that we don't know about, we need to start looking for this message and finding who all is preaching it where. And we need to get in line with it. Because it's the key to recognizing where the messengers are. We don't necessarily need to start speculating a great deal on who the messengers are, but we need to focus on the message. The message to us, the message to the church, what Christ has to say to us. I'm giving a Bible study in the various areas that I go to on self-deception. And I think it's quickly turning into a sermon for the first day of unleavened bread. Because two of the churches of Revelation are totally self-deceived in their true standing. Some say they are alive, but they are dead. Others say we're okay and rich and increased with goods, but God says you're naked and blind. Now, how deceived can you get? I better shut up. I'm starting the other sermon here. Uh, it is time to end, so we'll stop here. But I will say this. Look for the message that we discussed today, and you can't go wrong. This transmission is ended. Beginning of the tribulation, and the church leaves at that point, and they're left looking around saying, Oh, there they are, but the church is already gone. And it's too late. And they're in the tribulation. And probably less than 10% are going to recognize the Rebel and Joshua for who they are before this comes about and come together to build the Rimland Church. As we saw in the beginning of this sermon, even that church, whichever daughter it is, the daughter of Zion, which he says in Micah 4 and other places, Proverbs 31, many, many references to the daughter of Zion whom God is going to choose of all the daughters and bring and put together the church through. Even she